Chapter One of the Iron Horse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Iron Horse by Robert Michael Ballantine. Chapter One treats of the engine-driver's house and household talk of earthquakes not all the earthquakes that have rumbled in ecuador or toppled over the spires and dwellings of peru could compare in the matter of dogged pertinacity with that earthquake which die early and hourly shocked little gertie's dwelling quivered the white dimity curtains of little gertie's bed and shook little gertie's frame a graceful rounded little frame it was yet strong and firmly knit perhaps in consequence of its having been from infancy so constantly and so well shaken together her neat little body was surmounted by a head which no sculptor in search of an antique model would have chosen gertie's profile was not grecian her features were not classic but they were comely and rosy and so sweet that most people wanted to kiss them and many people did gertie did not object probably being only six she imagined that this was the ordinary and natural method of salutation yet it was observable that the child did not reciprocate kisses except in one or two special cases she had evidently a mind of her own a fact which was displayed most strikingly in the passionate manner in which she reciprocated the embraces of john marrett her father when that large hairy individual came in of an evening and catching her in his long arms pressed her little body to his damp pilot-cloth coated breast and her chubby face to his oily smoke and soot begrimed countenance forgetful for the moment of the remonstrance from his wife that was sure to follow now then john there you go again you ain't got no more power of subduing your feelings than one of your own injuns which is the screechinest, fizzinest, crashinest, bustin' things I ever ad misfortune to ave to do with. There's a clean frock just put on this morning, only fit for the wash tub now. But John was an easy going man. He was mild, kind, sedate, undemonstrative by nature and looked upon slight matrimonial breezes as being good for the health. 
It was only Gertie who could draw him into demonstrations of feeling such as we have described, and as we have said, she always reciprocated them violently, increasing thereby the wash-tub necessity tenfold. It would have been strange indeed if John Merritt could have been much put about by a small matrimonial breeze, seeing that his life was spent in riding on an iron monster with white-hot lungs and boiling bowels, which carried him through space day and night at the rate of fifty miles an hour. This, by the way, brings us back to our text, Earthquakes. Gertie's house, or Gertie's father's house, if you prefer it, stood close to the embankment of one of our great arterial railways, which of them, for reasons best known to ourself, we don't intend to tell, but for the reader's comfort, we shall call it the Grand National Trunk Railway. So close did the house stand to the embankment that timid female passengers were known occasionally to scream as they approached it, under the impression that the train had left the rails and was about to dash into it an impression which was enhanced and somewhat justified by the circumstance that the house stood with one of its corners instead of its side front or back towards the line thereby inducing a sudden sensation of wrongness in the breasts of the twenty thousand passengers who swept past it daily. The extreme edge of its most protruding stone was exactly three yards four inches by measurement from the left rail of the down line. Need we say more to account for the perpetual state of earthquakedom in which the house was involved? but the tremors and shocks to which it was exposed by night and by day was not all it had to bear in certain directions of the wind it was intermittently enveloped in clouds of mingled soot and steam and being situated at a curve on the line where signalling became imminently needful it was exposed to all the varied horrors of the whistle, from the sharp screech of interrogation to the successive bursts of exasperation or the prolonged and deadly yell of intimidation, with all the intermediate modulations, so that what with the tremors and shocks and crashes and shrieks and thunderous roar of trains gertie's father's house maintained an upright front in circumstances that might have been equalled but could not have been surpassed 
by those of the Eddystone Lighthouse in the wildest of winter storms, while it excelled that celebrated building in this, that it faced a storm which knew no calm, but raged furiously all the year round. John Merritt was an engine driver on the Grand National Trunk Railway. This is equivalent to saying that he was a steady, sober, trustworthy man. None but men of the best character are nowadays put in so responsible a position. Nearly all the drivers on the line were of this kind, some better than others, no doubt, but all good. Of course, there are exceptions to every rule. As in the best regulated families, accidents will happen. So, on the best conducted lines, an occasional black sheep will get among the drivers. But this is the exception that proves the rule. The rule in the Grand National Trunk Railway was get the best drivers and pay them well. The same may be said of the firemen, whose ambition was ultimately to drive the iron chargers which they fed. Besides being all what we have said, John was a big, burly, soft-hearted, hard-headed man, who knew that two and two in ordinary circumstances made four, and who didn't require to be told that his left foot was not his right one. It was generally supposed that John Merritt had no nerves, and that his muscles had imbibed some of the iron of which his engine was composed. This was a mistake though there was some truth in both suppositions. John's family consisted of himself when at home, which although often was never for long, his wife, fat and fair, capable of being roused, but on the whole a good, sensible, loving woman, his eldest daughter Lucy, or Lou, nineteen, dark, pretty, and amiable, his youngest daughter Gertrude, alias Gertie, six, sunny and serious, at least as serious as possible for one so young, so innocent, so healthy, and so happy as she, his son Bob, aged twelve, who was a lamp-boy at the great station not far off, and of whom it may be briefly said that he was no better than he should be, and lastly, the baby, not yet at the walking period of life, with a round head, round body, round eyes, and a round dozen at least, if not more, of hairs standing straight up on the top of his bald pate, suggesting the idea that he must at some period of his life have been singed by a passing locomotive, an event not by any means beyond the bounds of possibility, 
for it may be written with more truth of this than of any other infant that he had been born and nurtured amid thunder smoke and blazes as might have been expected in the circumstances he was a powerful baby we cannot afford space for a full description but it would be wrong to omit mention of the strength of his lungs the imitative tendency of children is proverbial clearly the locomotive was baby merritt's pattern in many things no infant that ever drew breath equalled this one at a yell there was absolutely a touch of sublimity in the sound of the duet frequently heard when baby chanced to be performing a solo and his father's engine went streaking past with a running accompaniment it is a disputed point to this day which of the two beat the other and it is an admitted fact that nothing else could equal either there were two other inmates of john merritt's house not members of the family one was his fireman william garvey who lodged with him the other was a small servant or maid of all work who led a rugged existence but appeared to enjoy it although it kept her thin her name was anne stocks familiarly known as nanny we are thus particular in describing the engine driver's household because apart from other reasons a group of human beings who could live and thrive and eat and sleep and love and learn and so forth in such circumstances is noteworthy it is quite a treat believe it reader to see little gertie and the baby slumber while the engines were apparently having a night of it outside come with us and behold it is ten thirty p m father is crossing country on the limited mail at any pace you choose between fifty and eighty miles an hour time having been lost at the last station owing to the unaccountable disappearance of a first-class passenger and time having to made up by fair means or otherwise his mate stands beside him in the family mansion pretty lou sleeps like a good angel as she is in a small room farthest from the corner next the line but with her we have nothing to do at present nanny also sound asleep lies in some place of profound obscurity among the coals in the lower regions of the house laying in that store of health and vigor which will enable her to face the rugged features of the following day we dismiss her also with the hope that she may survive the coal dust and the lack of oxygen and turn to the chief room of the house the kitchen parlor dining-room drawing-room nursery and family bedroom all in one 
engine drivers are not always so badly off for space in their domiciles but circumstances which are not worth mentioning have led john merritt to put up with little in this apartment which is wonderfully clean and neat there are two box beds and a sort of crib baby sleeps as only babies can in perfect bliss in the crib gertie slumbers with her upturned sweet little face shaded by the white dimity curtains in one bed mrs molly merritt snores like a grampus in the other it is a wide bed let deep into the wall as it were and mrs m's red countenance looms over the counterpane like the setting sun over a winter fog bank hark a rumble in the far distance ominous and low at first but rapidly increasing to the tones of distant thunder it is the night express for the north going at fifty miles an hour at such a rate of speed it might go right round the world in twenty-one days while yet distant the whistle is heard shrill threatening and prolonged louder and louder it is nearing the curve now and the earth trembles the house trembles too but gertie's parted lips breathe as softly as before the baby's eyes are as tight and his entire frame as still as when he first fell asleep mrs merritt too maintains the monotony of her snore round the curve it comes at last hammer and tongs thundering like olympus and yelling like an iron fiend the earthquake is on the embankment shudders the house quivers the doors windows cups saucers and pans rattle outside all the sledge-hammers and anvils in vulcan smithy are banging in obligato accompaniment to the hissing of all the serpents that st patrick drove out of ireland as the express comes up still gertie's rest is unbroken she does indeed give a slight smile and turn her head on the other side as if she had heard a pleasant whisper but nothing more baby too vents a prolonged sigh before plunging into a profounder depth of repose mrs merritt gives a deprecatory grunt between snores but it is merely a complimentary hello is that you sort of question which requires no answer at last the rushing storm goes by a timid and wakeful passenger happens to lower the window and look out he sees the house it's all over are his last words as he falls back to his seat and covers his face with his hands he soon breathes more freely on finding that it's not all over but fifteen or twenty miles lies between him and the house he expected to annihilate before his nervous system has quite recovered its tone this reader is a mere sample of the visitations by which that family was perpetually affected though not afflicted 
sometimes the rushing masses were heavy goods trains which produced less fuss but more earthquake at other times red lights intimating equally danger and delay brought trains to a stand close to the house and kept them hissing and yelling there as if querulously impatient to get on the uproar reached its culminating point about twelve forty five on the night of which we write when two trains from opposite directions were singled to wait which they did precisely opposite john merritt's windows and there kept up such a riot of sound as feeble language is impotent to convey to the accustomed ears the whistle and clank of a checked and angry pilot engine might have been discerned amid the hullabaloo but to one whose experience in such matters was small it might have seemed as though six or seven mad engines were sitting up on end like monster rabbits on a bank pawing the air and screaming out their hearts in the wild delirium of unlimited power and ungovernable fury still although they moved a little the sleepers did not awake so potent is the force of habit however it did not last long the red lights removed their ban the white lights said come on the monster rabbits gave a final snort of satisfaction and went away each with its tail of livestock or minerals or goods or human beings trailing behind it the temporary silence round the house was very intense as may well be believed so much so that the heavy footfall of a man in the bypath that led to it sounded quite intrusive he was a tall broad-shouldered man in a large pilot coat cap and boots and appeared to walk somewhat lame as he approached the door he tried the handle it was locked of course i thought so he muttered in a low bass voice so much for a bad memory he rapped twice on the door loudly with his knuckles and then kicked it with his boot vain hope if a burglar with a sledge-hammer had driven the door in he would have failed to tickle the drum of any ear there the man evidently was aware of this for changing his plan he went round to a back window on the ground floor and opened it at the top with some difficulty peeping in he gazed for some time intently and then exclaimed under his breath ha it's opened by good luck gathering a handful of gravel he threw it into the house with considerable force the result proved that he had not aimed at random for the shower entered the open door of nanny's sleeping cellar and fell smartly on her face it is well known that sailors although capable of slumbering through loud and continuous noises can be awakened by the slightest touch so likewise nanny on receiving the shower of gravel she incontinently buried her head in the blankets drew an empty coal-scuttle over her shoulders 
and began to shout thieves and murder at the top of her voice having taken such pains to muffle it of course no one heard her cries the man if a burglar had evidently a patient philosophical turn of mind for he calmly waited till the damsel was exhausted and when she at length peeped out to observe the effect of her heroic efforts at self-preservation he said quietly nanny lass don't be a fool it's me open the door i've gone and forgotten my latch-key oh la master it ain't you is it it ain't thieves and robbers is it no no open the door like a good girl and it ain't an accident is it continued nanny partially dressing in haste oh i know it's an accident missus always prophesied as an accident would come to pass some day which has come true you're not maimed master no no be quick girl nor willem ain't maimed is he he ain't dead oh no say willem is bill garvey's all right said the engine driver as he brushed past the girl and went upstairs now although mrs marrett's ears were totally deaf to locomotives they were alert enough to the sound of her husband's voice when therefore he entered the kitchen he found her standing on the floor with an ample shawl thrown round her nothing wrong she inquired anxiously nothing molly dear only i got a slight bruise on the leg in the engine shed to-day and i had to go up and show it to the doctor to see before coming home which has made me later than usual are you sure it's not a back hurt father asked lou coming in at the moment also enveloped in a shawl and looking anxious sure ay i'm sure enough it's only a scratch see here saying this he removed one of his boots and pulling up his trousers displayed a bandaged leg well but we can't see through the bandages you know said mrs marrett let me take them off father and i'll replace take them off exclaimed john pulling down the leg of his trouser and rising with a laugh no no lou why it's only just been done up all snug by the doctor who'd kick up a pretty shinny if he found i had undid it there's one good will come of it anyhow i shall have a day or two in the house with you all for the doctor said i must give it a short rest so off to bed again lou it's not an hour for a respectable young woman to be wandering about in her nightdress away with you was any one else hurt father said lou she asked the question anxiously but there was a slight flush on her cheek and a peculiar smile which betrayed some hidden feeling no one else returned her father i tell ee it wasn't an accident at all it was only an engine that brushed up again me as i was coming out of the shed that's all so i just came home and left will garvey to look after our engine there run away lou smiled nodded and disappeared 
followed by Mrs. Merritt, who went, like a sensible woman, to see that her alarmed domestic was all right. While she was away, John went to the crib and kissed the rosy cheek of his sleeping boy. Then he bent over the bed with the white dimity curtains to kiss Miss Gertie's forehead, for which purpose he had to remove a mass of curly hair with his big brown hand. "'Bless you, my darling,' he said in silent speech. "'You came near being fatherless this night, nearer than you ever was before.' He kissed her again tenderly, and a fervent thank you, Lord, rose from his heart to heaven. In less than a half hour after this, the engine driver's family sank into profound repose, serenaded by the music of a mineral train from the black country, which rushed laboriously past their dwelling like an overweighted thunderbolt. End of chapter 1 Treats of the Engine Driver's House and Household Recording by Susan Morin, Portland, Maine